Welcome to the Matthias Barker Podcast, everybody. Hello, hello. I'm glad that you're here. I'm really excited to introduce you to a good friend of mine. His name is William Bortz, and he's a poet. You might recognize him from a project that we did last year together called On Grief. Uh, we wrote an ebook. It was a free ebook. You can get that on my website if you want, um, MatthiasJBarker.com. You can just download that for free. And uh, he did the poetry for the book. So the book was just a short kind of almost kind of like a long essay, really, on grief and the process of recovering from grief, really, like the trails of grief that can lead to further disrepair, um, complex grief, and and maybe some reflections that were meant to help protect from that. And, And William came along and really, I don't know, gave the project a lot of soul, like brought it down to the heart, not just kind of a series of, um, of uh, kind of psychological reflections, but really something artful and deep and meaningful. And and I'm so thankful for his collaboration on that project. It was it was great to talk to him here too, because I kind of take the time with William on this podcast to explore poetry, the utility of poetry in mental health. Um, we talk about grief, we talk about the process of grief, and then also kind of creating art that's meant to help people process pain. We kind of take a more um, broad reflection on that front as well. It's a really meaningful conversation with someone that is so deep and insightful and wise. I'm really excited to introduce you to him if you haven't gotten to encounter his content, his content yet. Um, and make sure to grab his book that he just wrote on grief as well. It's called The Grief We're Given. Hello. Well, what's up? <laughs> nice to see you, man. How you doing? Good to see you. Doing great, man. How are you doing? Good. Dude, I'm doing great. I'm happy to talk to you. This is going to be fun. This is going to be fun. I know. It's man. our first time officially like talking meeting. This is, I mean, we've corresponded. We actually co authored an <laughs> ebook together, but we haven't had an actual phone conversation. I know. What a delight. You're just as uh, charming this way as you are <laughs> over messaging. So it <laughs> translates fun. well. Oh, that's good, man. Well, I'm excited to talk to you, man, because I. I think that poetry for me just generally has kind of been something I've had little to no interest of for the majority of my life and then became very, very important almost all at once, um, kind of somewhere in the middle of my 20s. And I think that's the experience for a lot of people where maybe they're like in a high school lit class or something and they're reading Shakespeare and they're like, okay, whatever, like literature, fine, a little boring. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, I heard this um little quote or this pod what was it it was maybe like a clip or something on tiktok where someone said it really well they were just like yeah poetry doesn't matter until like your dad dies or you go through a breakup Mm. or the love of your life you know leaves you and then you're scrounging and you're scraping around for a way to describe it and Mm -hmm. for a way to make sense of something that's happening in your heart and i thought that was so that resonated so strongly with me because for a long time, I was like, ah, whatever, poetry. And then our mutual friend, Casey Canoe, was like, no, shut up. There's something here. You're not cool for, <laughs> for thinking that poetry is like effeminate or something. Uh, yeah. Like, you don't understand how much substance is there um, until you actually face something dark in your life, until you actually like reckon mm-hmm. with something existential. And then it becomes like this raft on the sea that um, in some cases can be the only thing keeping you afloat. 
So I know that's a really intense way to describe it, but how would you, what comes to mind for you is I kind of explore that idea that why poetry even matters or the discovery of it. How does one come into that? I think it's a great point. Um, And yeah, I think people's idea of poetry is exactly what you said. They cover it briefly in English class and that's just what poetry is to them. It's, yeah, it's either Edgar Allan Poe uh, William Shakespeare and it just feels so distant like so out of touch and in a way it's uh, it is like kind of a different language so like how do we relate to that um and then people will yeah find a poem online or someone will send it to them and when they're having a hard time and it just it just hits different I think for me it's always been like a lot of other mediums uh like photography or video where you'll just see something, hear something, read something, and it just opens a door. Mm. And I think the thing that is so mesmerizing about that moment with poetry is it doesn't, it's never something that really gives answers. Um, So I think in those moments when we're, um, you know, in a spot where we need something and we don't know what we need, Mm. there's a poem there that describes that we're needing something. And that we don't know what we need, but it is kind of just like a light on the, on the kind of on the horizon there, like you said, kind of a raft where we're still kind of just stuck. Yeah. But now we know we're not alone. You know, we have, we have a raft, we have a light, we have something else. Uh, and that's what poetry has always been for me too. Um, and I'll, I'll admit, like I've been writing since I was 11, but I didn't really like poetry until I was like 20, uh, maybe a little older. <laughs> And it probably just took one poem where it just made me realize that I don't really know anything at all. And it was a poem that just opens up so many doors and reveals that asking wasn't the right question. What do you mean by that? It It reveals what you don't know. What do you open that up a little bit? Yeah. So even if you think about like specific topics about like relationships or grief, like we, the way we think about grief is the way we think about it is our understanding of it. And so the questions we ask about our specific grief are always so linear and we're just looking for an answer. Mm. When, when things like grief, things like trauma, um, things like love, there isn't always an answer. There are just more refined questions. Mm. Yeah. I felt that same experience in, in the sense of poetry makes me slow down. Because I have this internal rhythm of I need to get over this grief. I need to like, I need to process it. I need to think through it. I need the pain to go away. And we have a lot of very uh, um, colorful and well thought out and well intentioned reasons for wanting it to get by quickly. Like, Mm -hmm. because we have people to support. I can't just like sit around and mope around in this grief. I have like kids. I have a life to get back to or people are depending on me or whatever. Like we have plenty of reasons why we need this to go by quicker. You know, in, in the mm-hmm. case of grief or in the case of trauma, but then poetry stops and slows down and says like, like, uh, I don't know. There was this poem I was reading recently. I forget her name. You recommended her to me. It has like a, a bird wing on the cover. Um, oh, might, it might've been Maggie Smith. Yeah. That sounds familiar. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think it was her. It was, she had this image of looking outside and missing her husband that was traveling and was far away. And, uh, and trying to describe how cold it was outside and, and just had this image of like the bark hugging the branches, but you know, like when the bark is just a little bit loose 
and it's just it's kind of like wrapped around the branch but it's not attached to the branch she like drew a connection between that feeling of cold of feeling like your sleeves are just off of your skin kind of like when the bark mm. is like covering the branches and then related just the dry grayness of that tree to the feeling that she was feeling of missing her husband and feeling cold and far away from him and mm. and it was it was and she did it in two lines and i don't remember yeah. i don't have it memorized but i was like sure. blown away at the ability for that for just a couple phrases to slow me down and then just to like this is what missing someone and missing someone's warmth feels like and and it's not even it was a yeah. metaphor but it was more just like an image it was just like a picture it was like it's like mm. in the same way this bark kind of hugs the tree it's like the sleeve of a tree and mm. and the grayness and the cold i miss him and um and i think that that's one of the wisdoms that poetry that's almost just like baked into the um the activity of poetry is making you slow down and feel things and put words to things that you don't know how to say. And so as you were saying, like it doesn't, it's the life raft, but it's not the thing that actually gets you anywhere. It's just, it just makes you realize you're not alone. You're not the only person who's felt that way. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. And I just say like with those lines, I mean, I think what's crazy about poetry, like what its ability to is we realize in those moments, like, missing someone that that too is like our life like we always have this idea of, like you said i have to get back to my life and mm. us being and poetry being able to slow you down and be like well that is this it too is your life like this is oh, not so good yeah, separate yeah. it's not like yeah. separated like this act of missing or us grieving like we have this painted idea of what our lives are like mm. and anything that isn't in there just feels foreign it's like that that stage of my life wasn't actually me living you know, but it was, and I think that's what's so neat about poetry, like that imagery is, while we may not in that moment be able to appreciate what we're feeling and what we're experiencing, poetry allows you to, in that grief, realize you're still interacting with the world, like you're still living, it's still your life, and ideally getting to the point where you appreciate that just as much, you know, like, because I think, you know, it's, it's, different for a lot of things but for like missing someone i mean that yeah that's i mean it's depending on where they're at you know if they're like out of yeah. war it's a very different scenario yeah. but you know like missing your wife when she's away it, in itself sucks it's part of life in the sense that mm -hmm. you get to appreciate the fact that you have someone to miss that this person <laughs> yeah. is coming home and um i'm always blown away by poetry you read where it is you have no experience with what the poem is talking about, but you get to enter into that, whatever it is, that degree of suffering. Mind, mind the animals here. Uh, <laughs> that degree of suffering or grief that is so foreign to you, but you still get to enter into it because it's a, a communal thing. Yeah. That, that's, that's a really great point. The sensation of being like, I know what that feels like, even though I've never experienced it. Um, I thought deeply about that on a psychological level because there's a there's a trap that young therapists and I'm not excluding myself from this category but but kind of green therapists will um fall into and because I I've fallen into it a lot myself where you're empathizing so strongly with someone's story because it resonates with something in your own story. And you got to be careful there's a we call that countertransference in therapy because mm. what you'll do if you don't watch yourself is you'll try to fix their problem the way you fix yours. Um, 
you'll impose your own emotional structure over the top of oh, there, sure. you know, and maybe for the better, maybe for worse, because maybe you figured it out. Maybe you haven't. <laughs> and, uh, and maybe <laughs> yeah. your maybe your fix, it would help their life or maybe it would just make everything more complicated because, you know, for example, someone working through a similar father wound, maybe someone's reaction is to be angry and volatile. Someone else's reaction is to avoid it and just dismiss it and give excuses for them, you know, and and both of those are real experiences, even though they experience something very, very similar. And so in a therapy setting, you'll be sitting there and someone will start describing something that feels like a pic, like a, like a direct reflection of something you've experienced. Then you think, oh, I have the answer. I can help because I've figured this out too. When for them, they're reacting to it completely differently because it's like, it's like the same ingredient going in a totally different bowl of soup. It's like, because mm. all the other ingredients in the soup are going to make a completely different flavor. Even though you've experienced ginger before, you know what ginger tastes like? Like, I know how to work with ginger. It's like, no, because mm-hmm. your your broth, your soup is a completely different thing than their soup. And so the wisdom in kind of these early years as a, as a therapist is learning how to take a step back and be like, just because I know you, just because, or I know this situation doesn't mean I know you. And just because I've felt wow. that pain doesn't mean I know what your flavor is, what your... Mm-hmm soup is like and then on the inverse of that yeah and on the inverse of that there's these moments when you're sitting in therapy and someone's gone through something completely different than you but you feel that warmth and that intensity that that resonance with them all the same and it's a strange feeling because you're like i could and and maybe you even in a collaborative way collaborative kind of way you try to come up with words and ways of describing and saying what they're going through and then you'll come up with a metaphor and then they'll be like, that's exactly it. And it mm-hmm. like opens up a whole new way of relating to that experience. And the ironic part is like, that was something that just emerged in the energy of whatever was happening with me and that client at that time. Like I didn't go through that. I, like I, my father's alive. Mm-hmm. Like I don't know what it's like to lose a father, but there was something just very human that we tapped into together. Um, yeah, yeah so that, it's that, an interesting wow. exchange. That is. That sounds challenging to be able to separate that. I mean, I feel like that idea, that practice can go into so many different things, too, mm. of not painting over other people's experiences with your own. Mm-hmm. That sounds challenging. Yeah. <laughs> it, sounds it is. Um, but it's but it's healthy. It's good. It, I think for me, it, it gives me just this humble appreciation for people um, in the sense of, I never feel like I have the answers. I never feel like I'm, I got this figured out. Cause I'm like, just because I've come across domestic violence, for example, you know, I don't know, probably in my career, I've worked with two dozen or so couples that have had violence as a part of their relationship. I never mm-hmm. presuppose that I know why it's happening. I never presuppose of like, oh, well, if you would just blank. I mean, there's common patterns. There's, there's common themes. I know the evidence-based mm-hmm. theories behind you know, the trajectory of what it could look like to find repair, but, but the unique experience of what that's like for both people. Um, yeah, that's, that's all their own to write. I don't know. How do you, in, in the poetry world where you're almost, you're kind of reverse engineering this you're, instead of me hearing an experience and then me trying to make meaning out of it, you're creating meaning to then paint onto people's experiences. How mm-hmm. do you, how do you think through that? Do you do you stick to the lens of your own experience or do you try to kind of conceptualize what something might be like for someone else that's outside of your experience? Great. That's a great question. I think for me personally, it definitely depends on sort of the the themes 
um, of that specific poem or specific piece of writing. Um, so for, if it's like, you know, if it's stuff about, I write about my father, about the relationship with my father. And for a lot of those things, it is end up being really personal. It's kind of through my, my lens. Um, but that being said, to kind of arrive at my own understanding of those relationships, it took communicating with us kind of an amalgamation of this is my grief, but it is ours. Like I, I know yeah. there are other people that have the same experience and, you know, there's some, there are some specifics in there, but that is definitely an interesting thing to think about. Cause there's a lot of time, you know, I'll put a poem out and someone will be like that, like a hundred percent like that. I know what you're talking about. And other people will be like, this is, this is not it. This is not do it. This is not do it for me. Um, and so it, it is a challenge. I think for a long time, when I first started to get really serious into writing, there was this idea of I wanted to write about my own personal experiences, but kind of in a in a buffet way, you know, where someone mm -hmm. could just come and take, and there'd be food for everyone. Um, mm -hmm. That that did not really work well. Mm -hmm. um, I think it it was understandably pretty disingenuous. Um, it, you know, it just didn't connect with people because then it was sort of a fabricated experience. Now that being said, I don't, there are also pieces that I work on about experiences that I've never experienced. Hmm. Um, but again, I think it's, I think it's all about the perspective. So writing about something like my relationship with my father, relationship with my mother or relationship with my wife or whatever, is me looking at the thing head on, but writing about something I haven't experienced is sort of writing it from behind the thing while looking at the person experiencing it. Mm -hmm. So trying to not just understand the thing, but the relationship between the thing and what the, you know, what's being acted on or who's mm -hmm. who's interacting with it. Um, but it's definitely so for you, you, a, you it sounds like you need that contact either. Um, vicariously or directly in order to really feel like, okay, I can actually give like an authentic, you know, not just something contrived, not something stale, like something really authentic. Mm -hmm. So is it for you, are you saying that is like in connection to friends or people that you know? And so then you're writing kind of from their experience of that or sure. is, is that close? A little bit. Um, that's a good, I have to good question. Um, so for example, I, I had a story published I believe about two years ago and it was a short story. It was the only short story I've ever had published. So, I was pretty cool. excited, but it was a story about addiction, about a, a married couple, um, this man struggling with addiction and over his wife. I, I hey, Will, I'll stop you for a sec because your audio is breaking up a lot. I can't, I can't understand yet. I think, I don't, I don't think it's a Wi-Fi connection because your video is working really well, but your, your audio was ca catching in and out. Um, okay. uh, Okay. Is this a little better? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, your audio is better. We fixed it. Okay. You were um, you were telling me about a short story um, that you wrote about in a couple going through addiction. Yeah, yeah. So the first short story I had published was about addiction. So uh, a man struggling with past addiction um, and relapsing and having a wife and a, and a kid on the way and ultimately choosing the addiction over his family, thinking it was mm -hmm. the better decision for for them. Um, and so that's the kind of situation where I, you know, I haven't experienced that personally. Um, I, at the time I was friends with some folk who had 
um, not that specific situation, but had dealt with addiction. And I think the, the sort of sentiment that really stuck with me the most was this idea that they're, they're carrying this thing that ultimately is a poison to the people they love. And so mm. always struggling with this, this decision to either continue on and having that affect the people around them or just, you know, protect those people and kind of veer off. Um, and not, not speaking to which one is a better option or that there's an answer out there, but that, that struggle, that, mm -hmm. um, that tension. Um, so, I mean, that one was specifically tough because again, I haven't dealt with addiction. So, um, but just trying to be, be genuine and have a wide perspective, not assuming things about something I just have no idea about. Yeah. Did you learn anything in that experience? Yeah, it was a it it was a it was definitely an emotional piece to write because I, I think that I I was able to kind of examine that experience, like my own interactions with my wife, and um, realize that there's like the things that I am struggling with and the things that I'm trying to get better at get better at for my family um take take so much effort that i think it's the hardest thing in the world hmm. and then i think about those experiences and compare them to other experiences that other people are having hmm. and i think for me it was, a, it was a pretty humbling experience to write to work on that piece um and to just try and dive into that sentiment of something I have not experienced again, but. But it sounds like the part that was resonating for you was this idea of, I got, how do I change this thing that I see is hurting other people? Yeah. And, um, and I care and I see the impact, but yet I still need this thing. Is that, is that close or would you describe it different? No, totally. Um, and, uh, I don't, I don't know if you are familiar with Breaking Bad or if you watched Breaking mm -hmm. Bad. Yeah, 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 I have. <laughs> So there's, there's one scene in that, in that show that uh, at the time I was working on it and I thought it was seen a lot. It's uh, towards the end, like um, it's like with the last episode, I think when Walter is, he goes back and visits Skylar and she's in a different life now and he's the fugitive and he starts to say, you know, everything I did. And she says, you know, don't tell me you did this for the family. And he's like, I did it for me. And it was just this, I just, I think that that tension is just such a, it was just so human yeah. to think that like we're constantly battling these things and always, whether it's justifying or finding reasons or this or that to be doing those things, it always comes down to a lot of times we are doing it for ourselves. Hmm. And for me, it made me, it, it kind of made me realize some of the things, the, the bad habits the things I was doing. I was always like, this is happening for this reason, you know, it's for the best or, you know, looking at it just from a totally messed up perspective and realizing that, no, I was doing that for me the whole, the whole time. Yeah. Well, oh, it's fascinating. Cause I, yeah, I totally resonate with that. I, um, I conceptualize it, you know, in a, like a case conceptualization sense, like there's a part of me that wants to change there's a part of me that's holding on to this behavior because in some way it's fixing something like there's always positive incentive like the only reason we repeat behavior is because we're there's some sort of reinforcement 
Mm-hmm. And even if we're not willing to admit it to ourselves that that's the reinforcement because we would, I don't know, for example, like in a drug addiction, feeling like, okay, but do I really love this substance more than I care about my family? And that might not be zooming in close enough to see the real intricacies there because you could say like, well, maybe that substance solves like eight different problems for you. Maybe it keeps at bay the memories that really terrorize you and the nightmares that terrorize you. Maybe it, maybe it keeps at bay that feeling of incompetency or that feeling of um, insecurity uh, because when you experience that substance, you're filled with confidence, you're filled with bliss, and so you don't have to touch the depression or the, you know, whatever, whatever the, it, the emotions are that you're trying to beat back. Right. Maybe it, uh, it helps you forget the regrets that you're holding on to. You know, so maybe it solves like nine different problems. And then someone says you should quit that substance. And then it's like, okay, great. I inherit these nine problems. And maybe I have solutions for two of them. Like, okay, some deep breathing might help when I'm feeling anxious. <laughs> so uh, I could go on a run and exercise. That'll help some of the, the, the jitters and the hypervigilance. That'll, that'll kind of help some of that. But what about these other seven things? What about my relationship with my mom who criticized me relentlessly and it makes me feel small? That substance made me feel big. How am I supposed to not feel small? And, and then that becomes a lot more complex than just, do you love the substance more than you love your family? It's like, I I don't know. This substance is the thing that grounds me so I can love my family. Mm. This substance is the only thing keeping me here, Mm. keeping me feeling like me. And so then that's the wrong, um, juxtaposition. It's, it's something deeper. Mm. It's like, who am I is the question under that big question, big question. Uh, And then when, when you can start to untangle that, like, and then you can help the people you love see that, that it was more than just, he'd rather have a beer and be drunk than be at my play or be at my recital. It's like, that's too simple. It's, it's not incorrect. It's just too simple. It's like, um, if you can start to see the nine problems that beer was, was fixing and not necessarily that that means it was right or that means it was fair or that means it was correct. But when you can see the complexity underneath it, there's a softening there's a, it, it's like what solves the problem starts to shift because before the only thing that would solve the problem is it mattering enough to you. It, it, you just had to see how much it was affecting the people you love. Like if you could just wake up, if you could stop being in denial, then that's, that's the solution it looks like from the outside. Mm. But then when you dive into the internal psyche and you start to understand with complexity, here's all the things the substance is fixing. It's like, oh, you need to be healed. Mm. You need healing. You don't need, it's like, it's, it's way worse than just you need to wake up. Right. It's like, it's like you need um, to be revived. And that's, that's a very different process. That's not something you can just decide to do one day. That's a whole journey mm-hmm. and a journey that some loved ones will stick around for and some will set up boundaries and let you take that journey yourself. And that's actually the healthier mode. And yeah, sorry. Yeah. I just went on a big old monologue there. <laughs> I just dove into that idea with you, but that was great. Um, yeah, you know, it comes the, up for you in that. I think it kind of going back to what you, kind of what we were talking about in the beginning, um, 
so poetry in general, I just feel like that's what is so good about it is that again, just oh, it asks more questions than it provides answers for. Um, mm. And all and all, and then I think, and it makes me think about just the, the great need for different diverse voices in poetry. Yeah. Um, there's so, cause I mean, we interact with people who have different struggles all the time um, mm -hmm. from all different walks of life and Poetry and just writing in general allows us to see life from a different perspective, from different you know, people's different perspective, and um, allows us to have more empathy and sympathize because it, it makes us realize that things aren't just like you were saying, just that simple. I mean, these problems that are huge and problems we live with and the way we cope, they're always so complex. Mm. So, you know, reading some of the, like some of the most startling poems I've read going back to even the one you talked about, it, it isn't so much even asking a question, it's just defining an experience. It's comparing mm. it to the, to the world that is directly around you. So thinking mm. of poems that just remind us that we're alive mm -hmm. in our grieving and our healing and our addiction and all these things, I think they just allow us to like reach outward and feel back what's feeling mm -hmm. us. And mm, wow. I think and the revive I think revive is a great word for that. And I'm not saying poetry is therapy by any means, but No, but you said it you said it earlier. It's like it helps you ask the right questions in some way. It almost it reveals the uh the two dimensionality of some of the questions that we feel like are the ones keeping us up at night. Mm. And it, it almost expands it. It's like, oh no, it's this whole big three D thing. And it's not so much now that we know how to solve it, it's like maybe I can see it from another angle. Mm. and and maybe maybe me solving this wasn't even the thing that was going to revive or heal maybe it was just i needed to see it in all its dimensions and then it yeah. it finds its place in a different way mm. yeah totally and i feel like with grief it's just such a like that just makes me think of grief 100 percent. yeah 100 percent, 100 percent. yeah and all the different ways we grieve i mean there's a lot of small i mean i think grief is just a word that is either overused or underused. So I think the things we grieve, we think they need to be these massive, huge things, you know, like a loved one dying, um, that one being a pretty big one. But That's there's a lot the of other things, you know, like yeah. leaving a job or yeah. um, a friendship, you know, distance growing in a friendship. Like these are sure. like small, active little griefs that we carry. Um, and I feel like it's always this challenging thing of being like, this isn't a big deal. Hmm. And we just think it's, you know, just a, a hurt, but realizing that this thing is something we're grieving, I think allows us to then be like, oh, well, this is an ongoing process. Yeah. You know, like you left the job and things are different. You have different like work relationships, like that sucks, but also it was a part of your life and it's worth grieving and grieving doesn't have one answer hmm. yeah and it can hit you in different waves it's like uh the things in life that are the most ordinary and normal like losing a loved one losing a job losing a friendship we, f we don't give ourselves credit to feel that they can be immensely profound and hmm. they can restructure everything yeah but there's no reason to think that the ordinary things wouldn't be the most profound things Right. So typically, like the more mundane things, you know, we're experiencing grief in a mundane way, 
most of our life is mundane. Mm-hmm. To end up back there constantly. Yeah. Um, mm. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, I'm 30. A lot of my friends are around that age and they're starting to have kids. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, I, and we're all around that age where we're thinking about, you know, what it's like to be a father to, you know, you're a mm-hmm. father second on the line. Yeah, I am. And I'm 30. Yeah. <laughs> In 30. that world. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it's interesting, you know, a lot of my, I have a, a lot of my friends are either grew up uh, being adopted, didn't, their dad wasn't around, um, group of foster care. We talk about this stuff a lot. Um, one of my closest friends, he just, his, his little girl just turned one and talking about what that experience is like being a dad, having a, mm-hmm. having had a really terrible experience as a father and thinking, you know, after 15 years, you've worked through the bulk of that mess mm-hmm. leading up to the father. You've come to terms with the situation with your dad. And we talked about it a lot where after having a kid, it's just kind of all come back. It's all different mm-hmm. now. Like this pain, this grief of that whole situation, him now being a dad, it's just kind of like, it's just kind of resuscitated. It's obviously very different. Yeah. But I, I think about that a lot. Um, not having a, a father growing up and then wanting to be a father like that's a weird thing to reconcile hmm. you know like do i have the do you have the tools to do that but that is just it's just fascinating to me how we have these experiences and we have this grief and we we kind of shape it and whittle it down and learn to carry it and then something happens we walk into a new experience and it just kind of reforms into something else hmm unfamiliar thing we have to learn to carry again oh 100 that's so well put yeah i think almost pulling that soup analogy back it's like someone throws a whole new ingredient in the soup and it throws off all the flavors and now i have to (laughs) rebalance (laughs) this whole dish again like yeah 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 i had it perfect and then someone dumped in a bunch of hot sauce and (laughs) now what do i do (laughs) yeah how do you how do you navigate that Mm. yeah i think about that too you know, I think that's a unique thing about grief in particular is the exciting experiences um, sometimes wouldn't have happened in the same way if the person we lost was there, but we still want to share it with them. Mm. Like, uh, I don't know, for example, the idea of losing a father early on or never knowing your father and all the ways that that shaped you into the man you're going to be today. The resiliency, perhaps, that that imposed in certain ways, the vulnerability that it reckoned in you in different ways and then having a child and then wishing that they had a grandpa Mm. um wishing you had someone to ask advice to and not just like a buddy not just uh i don't know that boss that you have a good relationship with i mean that's all fine and supplementary but Mm -hmm. but the real substance of it like like down in your bones some of the things that you really just wish you had input on yeah. Someone you wish you had someone who knew you so deeply mm. and could give you the advice you need because they know you better than you know yourself. Mm. And in so in some ways, it's like I've grieved the loss of that. I'm stepping into it. But then. I mean, the very, uh, I don't know, um, event of something beautiful happening in the world, like having a child brings up that grief and almost expands that grief in a different way that it wasn't expanded before. But that's be- just because it, hold, it, uh, it touches on new domains that matter. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I've talked to clients that in losing a spouse, it's the same kind of thing. Um, getting remarried is a weird experience. Um, especially when you have the feeling of wishing that your um, deceased spouse could see the joy and share in the joy of you finding oh, a God. new mate. Yeah. <laughs> How do you put words to that? Like, yeah, oh. I don't know, because your, your person used to be what you shared everything with. And the good things that happened in your life, they were the first person you wanted to tell. And I don't know, not even on a wedding day, but just even the idea of you really enjoyed your first date. The first thing, the first person you want to tell in some ways is your spouse, but then you have this horrific guilt around enjoying that experience. And the reason maybe to, uh, to add the layers of complexity is because there's multiple parts of you that feel um, multiple ways. There's the part of you that just enthusiastically connected to your um, your, you know, your spouse that passed away that just wants to share all the good things. There's the part of you that still feels loyal to her. And so you feel guilt. There's the part of you that's kind of new and wants to connect to someone new and is enjoying that connection in its own way. Um, all those things are happening all at the same time. And then it's, it's like the closer that you get, the more that grief that you have for your deceased spouse starts to get even more complex and even deeper. Yeah. How do you think through that? I, that makes me think a lot about, um, so I grew up, I grew up in foster care. Mm-hmm. Um, I lived with my mom for a while and, you know, it was, wasn't a great situation. So, um, spent a lot of years in foster care and here and there and in shelters and stuff, uh, but primarily away from my mom and, I had, I mean, I had a lot of great role models. I lived with a lot of great families, a lot of great people to care of me. Um, one family I lived with for a decade. And it was this always strange feeling that the way you're describing, um, realizing that there are, I, there are a lot of people who don't get the second chance that I get, that I got, you know, like I, mm-hmm. I was able to get and be around a lot of people who I didn't know as family and that I know loved mm-hmm. me and I love them. But it was always this tension of knowing that it's it just can't replace like the relationship you have with yeah. Yeah. actual mom. And it is and it, it, it kind of ebbed and flowed, kind of how you're describing, um, between it just always it's a lot of different emotions of being very grateful but then also realizing it's still very far away. Mm-hmm. Um, and both of those are true at the same time. And at the same time. And it, it's just a very, it's a very challenging thing to carry. And I think I go, you know, I, I there's, you always hear people talk about the older you get, you realize the less, you know, mm-hmm. um, and being younger and being like, you know, I've, I've come to terms with it. You know, I'm good. I've talked it out. Um, I did, I did counseling, you know, I've, I've done the stuff, like I'm good to go. Hmm. But then, you know, six months later, that, that feeling kind of comes back and it's just sort of this disconnect. It's just this like this, this wire that just does not connect to like a source hmm. of power. Um, realizing that even, you know, I'll just have this feeling forever. Hmm. I mean, of remembering these really great people who took care of me, who I saw as family and that, 
you know, in, in unfortunate ways were better at that than my actual mom. And never being able to be 100% grateful for that because when I become grateful for that, it just shines light more on the fact that my actual mom was not that person. So as you're saying, the kind of the closer I get to that, the heavier the thing is to carry. <laughs> the, mm. it's, 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 yeah, it just becomes so complex and hard to focus mm. in on. Yeah. Ah, oh, so well put. It's like, um. I mean, that that just reminds me of an adage that I, I repeat it so often, sometimes I forget the weight of it. <laughs> one of those, I don't know, it's one of my catchphrases, I guess. Um, but it's like, yeah, the, the things that hurt the most matter the most. Mm. Um, that's why they hurt the most mm. is because they matter the most. And so the closer we get to the things that we value and the things that matter to us in the good sense, in the, in the sense that gives us the warm fuzzies and the positive feelings, ironically, that gets us even closer to the things we're most terrified of and we most dread and give us the most grief. Mm. And... And that's like, I think part of the role of therapy is to help you work through that allergic feeling we have to pain and not so much to get it to go away, but to figure out how to hold it. Because if you don't know how to hold it, you'll never get close to the thing that matters. And it's like, how can I get rid of it? And I'm like, you can't get rid of it without getting rid of everything good in your life. Like, mm. and, and Lewis was one of the, the people who helped me figure that out first. He had this beautiful thing where he's just like, yeah, you can protect your heart and keep it behind all these, you know, tall walls and all cold and alone and destitute all by itself. It will get so hard and so cold that no one could ever break through it. And, but it'll be completely safe. Mm. And, um, just the sacrifice, the cost of safety is utter loneliness. Mm. And, um, yeah. So as you're even describing that, paradox of increasing in gratefulness and increasing the weight of I don't know um sadness around your mother yeah that that makes sense yeah and it, it, thinking about it now um you know there's a there's a lot of writers who who in the past few years past four or five years have fallen in love with because the way they write they write about appreciation like it's kind of a different language. Um, thinking about like Hanif Abdurraqib, which I may, when we chatted before about books, I may have recommended one. Yeah, yeah, you did. Um, and Kaveh Akbar. Mm. Um, they write about appreciation, like it's a different language. And I remember first reading both of them. It just was, it was, I mean, it was light, it was life-changing, not, not to, you know, misuse that word, but it truly was. Uh, yeah. I think about those books and that language of appreciation constantly. Well, tell me more about that. What about what about how they phrased it? Really, it was transformational for you. So they wrote about things that suck. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like bad, traumatizing experiences. Um, they wrote about things that I I don't I don't have experience with. They wrote about racism, oppression, alcoholism, um, all these things, but the way they wrote about it was like, I, this is the life I have. And not being grateful for those things, but realizing I'm alive to have, to see these things and understanding the complexities 
of life. So like for me, thinking about my relationship I have with my mom, knowing that most of my life again is just mundanity, just the same stuff over and over and over again. Um, and unfortunately, grief being one of those things that learning how to hold it and reshape it into something that produces gratefulness. It's like looking at these things that are, that suck yeah. <laughs> and reshaping them into, I guess you could say into like a, a looking glass to look at yeah. your life in a way that produces appreciation. Hmm. Um, and that, that is a very bad way of selling their writing. Um, <laughs> But, I loved that. That was great. Yeah. But my that 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 impact of what it had done for me in my life and in my writing was was huge. Um, being able to on because I, I like poetry for me is just constantly unraveling things. Mm -hmm. It's sort of like that that like weird game people play where you wrap a bunch of like candy and money in a ball of saran wrap. <laughs> you have to like unwrap it. Um, yeah play that game at youth group yeah yeah great youth <laughs> yeah. Game. yeah 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 uh, unwrapping this big ball of saran wrap all the prizes buried <laughs> inside yeah and sometimes yeah. you have to wear oven mitts yeah 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 i feel like the oven mitts is definitely a better metaphor for poetry we have to get mm -hmm. up while doing this but <laughs> it's like 90 percent of it is just unwrapping and not having anything and yeah that and learning to appreciate that aspect of it as aspect of life and aspect of poetry is, is huge. I think it just produces more, again, more perspective, more questions than anything. Mm. Just this idea of, of wonder. Um, yeah. Well, and our friend Casey helped me see this once I was, I had this whole phase of my life where I was obsessed with New York city and wanted to move to New York and was just totally, uh, yeah, love drunk with that um, mm. symbolic freedom and uh, I don't know what it is about. There's there's a certain luster about New York that I think captures the young, ambitious mind and promises yeah. all the opportunity and excitement and adventure and status. I don't know. Uh, mm. It was it was around the time that I was listening to Casey Neistat and watching his vlog pretty often. He, he was a um, vlogger who just made the whole experience of being in New York look like the biggest adventure ever and uh it it created a lot of like discontentment in in my heart um around my life at that point i was like 25 working at a bank kind of it was before i thought about therapy mm. and it was right before that actually it was i was just kind of aimless not really knowing what i was going to do and um and i was telling casey about this and i was just like ah I just wish I could move there. I just wish like there would be an adventure there. There would be something good there. Like this city sucks, Spokane, Washington. I hate living in this tiny town, working at a bank, not doing anything. Like I just felt so um, bored and angry, like angry at my life, mm -hmm. um, at how mundane it felt. And then Casey in his very direct, borderline insulting, but loving <laughs> yeah. kind of way. <laughs> He just looked at me. He was like, he's like, Matthias, if you can't appreciate Spokane, you'll never be able to appreciate New York. Mm. I was like, what are you talking about? And he's like, if you can't see the beauty in these small things, the beauty and the big things are going to completely escape you. 
Mm. Um, and I'll never forget it because it just like sucked the wind out of me. I was like, oh, and he was right. He was just he was saying, and and I went on to later fill in the gaps, reflecting on that later. Just this idea of like I would have just been wrapped up in this symbolic um, propaganda. I mean, that's not the right word. Not propaganda. Just the the pitch of New York. New York has a has a luster that that's on the surface, but when you really look deep into it, it doesn't necessarily always deliver this mm-hmm. what we see on television around New York and the movies around New York and and uh, I don't think it could have cashed the check that I wanted it to write had I moved there. Right. And Casey, a good friend, coming alongside of me and like, there's so much more here than that you're not looking at and that you're not seeing. And Oh, it was beauty. It was just so helpful. So as you were saying, like 90% of this job of writing poetry is like unwrapping this wrapping paper and finding nothing, but learning to notice the something and the nothing mm-hmm. or the yeah. beauty in the something, the, the beauty in the nothing. It's uh, like, that's where you find this something. And, and that's, what's cool about poetry is it wakes me up to dimensions of beauty and meaning that I totally would have skipped over. Cause I was just going too fast. Like, mm-hmm. like when I, walk through my neighborhood and I realize, oh, there's like this beautiful street here. And I've driven past this street a million times, never noticed how pretty this like light pole was or this garden in this person's front yard. But then when you walk, you have the pace to see it, to notice it. In the same way, I think life and the mundane it has a similar thing. Oh, what, what do you think through all that? Absolutely. Um, I had a very similar experience with, with Casey, which <laughs> I'll mention and then move on. Um, we we I live two blocks from a little bar cafe and yeah. Casey and I go there and have a beer. Um, once I got the contract to write the grief for a given, I met up with Casey a lot more and we'd have a beer. And I remember one time specifically, it was it was probably January. It was cold. We had a beer and we stood outside and we were having a cigarette and Casey was talking about appreciation. Similar conversation. <laughs> But he was just talking about it. He was just talking about its importance, its value. And he mentioned David Foster Wallace, which he mentioned mm-hmm. a lot. Um, and brought up that idea of all, most of our lives being mundane. And it's funny, I think about that moment. And I think about that moment a lot. It just, it being at night, just bitter cold. And I was just standing outside shivering having a cigarette, um, having just had two beers and just being in good company. Like mm-hmm. there, I mean, it was a tiny conversation. It was yeah. in this grand scope of my life. It was nothing. It was a pinprick, mm-hmm. but it was like him talking about appreciation in that moment was one of the most valuable moments I've had in the past few years. Mm. And thinking about it it's just it's just it's just it's it's kind of ironic and it's as you said and even in i think casey would appreciate the sentiment of that memory for me is kind of genuine and insulting as well that i, <laughs> I learned about appreciation after looking back at a moment that was miraculous and thinking it was nothing hmm. um um yeah but oh i lost my train of thought thinking about casey um, yeah, well, he, I think Casey gets that. I, I, it's no mystery. He gets that from Wallace. I remember Casey telling me to read Infinite Jest and yes. and making fun of me ahead of time for probably not finishing it. And um, 
and he was right. I never finished it. <laughs> and, and, uh, he was, I think he was talking it up once and I'm like, Oh, I should read that. He's like, you're not going to read it. I mean, no, I, I, sh I should read that book. He's like, it's, it's probably would be the best book you'd ever read and you're never going to read it. And I'm like, mm -hmm. no, I'm going to show you Casey. I'm going to read it. And I got through the first like 200 pages. It's a long book. It's a big, long book. And I'm like, he's been describing like this office room, like right after describing like tennis for, for like a hundred pages and, and i'm like <laughs> what are you talking about like casey why what in the world do you like about this book this is the boringest <laughs> book and and i was so irritated that he's just been that david foster wallace has been describing the details of this office furniture for it probably wasn't hundreds of pages it was probably like four pages but like probably too long right? probably too long and i'm like what the hell um and <laughs> And then, uh, yeah, Casey just being like, you're missing it. Mm. It's like, it, when you get it, you'll never want him to stop. Yeah. Like, you, it's like when you're content sitting there in mm. the grandeur of the mundane, you'll get it and you won't want it to stop. That's it. That's. And I was like, ah, oh, whatever. And then I didn't finish it. And <laughs> I didn't finish it. <laughs> It'll be waiting for you, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, it's still on my shelf. I just yeah, want like, people to think I'm smart having it. Oh, on yeah, my shelf. Like, oh yeah, look at that big book. <laughs> bit. Um, yeah, the grandeur of the mundane. That's such a good way to put it. Um, mm. One of my one of my favorite poets I found. Um, I was it was a few years ago when I was in a discipleship group, mm -hmm. and it was on six a.m. on a Friday. Mm. Terrible, um, and the guy that led it is a good friend of mine, he would always, right off the bat, he brought a book of poems. It was Ted Couser. Uh, he's a, he was the former, he might still be, but he was the poet laureate of Nebraska. Hmm. Um, he would always start our group by reading a poem from this book. And these poems, like at the time, I was like, this is literally about nothing. He, he's from Nebraska, he writes about turkeys. When I yeah. had some poems, profound poems, which I can't remember, and I'll try to recite, was about a spoon. It's about Ted Couser in the morning looking at a spoon hmm. and reading this poem. I mean, he, he writes about nothing, about the thing we define as nothing, yeah. about uh, the two minutes we get to sit at our kitchen table and drink one sip of coffee before having to put it in a mug and leave. Hmm. Um, but he that's another poem he has where he's talking about that idea, this sort of idea of us grasping onto our lives and likens it to, which I think this may be a fresh metaphor for you for a young child, just reaching up and grabbing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's this idea that again, so much of our lives is just waiting for the next thing to happen. The next, like, life moment to happen um like mm -hmm. this week like i was excited for this mm -hmm. so i didn't pay attention to 90 percent of my <laughs> life this week yeah. up until this moment and thinking about all of the the things i missed all the, the grandeur of the mundane um mm -hmm. just like sitting in silence with my wife or reading a poem or doing the dishes or whatever mm -hmm. just not looking at it. 90% of my life as it's going by and poetry just unravels that. Mm. It just shows you things 
that you don't look at exactly like what you're saying like driving yeah. down the road you've driven down a thousand times but this time you happen to look at this tree mm-hmm. right at golden hour and it makes yeah. you feel something you're like where has that been my whole life yeah Why and that I- is and you said it perfectly that is your life yeah that like uh we look for and, and, and maybe some of it's media maybe some of its culture but it's probably a a very human thing to want to look forward to the next stimulating exciting thing Mm. but if if our life is only these peak experiences um man we've experienced a little of it yeah yeah like we've we've experienced such a small amount of joy compared to what we could have been experiencing if we were fully present with the mundane things and this is such a hard thing for me in particular um maybe not me in particular maybe for a lot of people but i i feel it really viscerally i guess that's what i mean and and that i'm really extroverted um i'm really high in openness which means i love stimulation i love the party i love the impulsive risky thing like i if people are like, let's go bungee jumping. I'm like, let's do it in the middle of the freezing cold with no clothes. on. That sounds like a blast. Like, I'm just like, bring on the stimulation. Like, let's, it just like bring on the intensity, the let's turn it up to 11. Like that's, that's kind of my personality. I guess it's not the only dimension of my personality. I can, it's funny being a therapist for that reason. I remember first becoming a therapist and talking to my therapist at the time. I was seeing a psychoanalyst for a little bit and I'm like, I'm like, man, Therapy in, in some ways is, is, is I, I hate to admit this, but sometimes I get bored. And he's like, yeah, well, you just, you thrive off of sensation and this is a very quiet job. And you have to learn to see the, kind of the grandeur in this mundane. You have to see the, you have to see through on the surface, someone just complaining about their ex and you have to see the intense grandeur and complexity, the, the wild adventure it is to listen to a 13 year old girl complain about their ex. <laughs> and and I and I remember being like, oh, okay, I get it. And from that point, uh, feeling invigorated about my job, like just wow. feeling, because I because I had to I had to have that perspective. It was ninety percent of your job is not going to be working with you know. I've had cases I won't say, but that have been on the news that that look like something out of like a Criminal Minds episode or a CSI episode or something. Like I've had sure. some wild cases. But those aren't even the ones when I remember on the most like stimulating, exciting moments of my career so far. It's nothing like that. It's um, it's almost once you can appreciate the grandeur of of mundane things and see them for what they are, which is um, infinitely complex and deep. Then uh, it it contextualizes. It's not that you don't have peak experiences. It's like your life just becomes um, three dimensional in all sorts of different ways that you never really thought. I guess I'm being a little tangential here, but just thinking through that idea, it's like yeah. the grandeur in the mundane. It's so true. It, I found, I've seen it true on so many different levels and, yes. and my personality fights against that. It fights for the peak experiences. And part of my arc of growth has been to see mm-hmm. the infinite complexity and in seemingly mundane things. Um, yeah. And when I'm there, I'm, I'm healthier. Mm. Yeah. I don't know. You mm-hmm. don't, you don't seem like the extroverted type yourself. No, I'm not. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I, <laughs> when you're talking about, yeah, skydiving and things, it's cringe a little bit. Um, 
But I think it's kind of a similar way. I, I'm definitely an introvert. I work from home. Um, yeah. You know, there will be days where I just don't leave the house. And I'm very, I'm very content with that. Um, my wife is definitely, she's probably more introverted than extroverted, but she enjoys social experiences a lot more than I do. Not that I don't enjoy them, but I'm more scared of them is probably the right phrasing for that. Um, <laughs> but there is this, the same idea and whether it's something that I've bought into or, um, or not this idea for those, yeah, those highs where I do like them again even thinking about this and i think that's the that's the 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 standard you know waiting for the weekend kind of idea um Mm -hmm. this weird this weird thing where i'm introverted but i don't want to be introverted you know i want to like go do crazy things but i also want to stay at home so (laughs) yeah staying at home Um, Mm. but i i i think that's i I, well you're phrasing your your arc of growth um I, I like that phrase. Um, one of my favorite, I've mentioned him, Hanif Abdurraqib. I watched an interview he did um, talking about the way, the way the, the context of this comment was talking about appreciation. Um, and I feel like this is a very generic quote and I'm probably misquoting it, but I'm talking about the, the role of the writer is to live a life that you can then bring to a blank page and fill out. Mm. But I think that's the role of, I mean, you could say that about anyone. I mean, like about, you know, if you never interacted with a living person, I don't know if you'd be great at your job. I mean, maybe mm. you still would be good at your job, but I feel like that mm. enriches it, right? Like mm. learning different experiences. And I think it's the same for everything. Um, and it's just a good life lesson in general of living our life in a way that we can then bring those small admirations and appreciations to the things we care about. Yeah. job family art whatever it may be um that being said i have tried over the past few years to be more spontaneous (laughs) be less introverted and it's funny because that that in the moment it's a horrible terrible thing but it's always rewarding and always fantastic Mm. Um, like i remember probably a year before the pandemic or maybe two time doesn't exist anymore but um, <laughs> when I started you know before I when I was putting out a book a few, four or five years ago I was like well I want to I want to do poetry readings you know because I mm-hmm. watched them online um I went to them and I was like I want to do the thing like, I want mm-hmm. to be reading the poems and I remember my first one and I planned it out I feel like very safely it was at a coffee shop I'd worked out for a number of years I knew everyone who worked there still you know I knew some of the people would be there and I was like all right so I set up a, they had an open mic night and I went at Red Palms and I made sure to bring all of my good friends with me. And it was one of the most rewarding things mm. I've done. And it was, it was incredibly challenging. And then, you know, since then I've maybe done like 30 or 40 poetry readings and it is probably yeah. my favorite activity oh, in, awesome. in the world. Um, oh man. But getting mm. into that was absolutely horrifying. It was... <laughs> It was terrible. Um, I feel like the first few times I just kind of like blacked out. I don't really remember that, but yeah, that's, that's been my arc of growth to try to be more introverted or be more less introverted. And I feel like part of that is being able to appreciate the fact that I can do things that are uncomfortable. 
Yeah, that's right. And not, and not have, uh, and there'd be no severe repercussions of that. Mm-hmm. Like what a, what a privilege to be like, I want to do this uncomfortable thing. Mm. Life will just go on. Um, yeah, that's precisely it. It's the flexibility to do something outside of your temperament. Mm. And and for me, it's it's not my arc of growth isn't necessarily slowing down. It's having the ability to slow down. Like I can run fast or I can slow down when I want to. And like mm. you said, it doesn't have repercussions. It's a brilliant way to put it because it's not like I experience a lot of emotional fatigue slowing mm. down and really treating, you know, someone talking, a 13-year-old talking about their ex who broke up with them over text. And I'm just like, like I can slow down and be just as present and just as enthralled in that moment when I mm. want to be um, with all the same enthusiasm as I can be when I'm jumping off a bridge with a bungee cord, you know, wrapped around my legs. Like, and for you, it sounds like it's, it's that safety in the introverted, you know, solitude mixed mm. with this ability to go and do the poetry reading and to take just as much joy and to be just as present in those moments as well. Mm. Is that close? Yeah, definitely. I like that, that connection you made though. And I feel like I'm going to think on this, mm. um, that comparing those two activities and having the same degree of being enthralled, that's, that's the, my missing connection. I need to figure out <sighs> connection between those things for me. So that's a great, yeah, it's a great word, but totally, mm. totally. That's good. William, this has been great. This is fun. Yeah. We yeah. need to talk way more. This is, I love this conversation. Yeah. It's a blast. Yeah, yeah. I, um, tell tell people a little bit about your book that you came out with a while ago. It's really good. People need to hear it. Oh, sure. Um, uh, last year ago, um, published book called "The Grief We're Given." Yeah. Um, and the idea of the book is, I mean, it, it's is a book about grief. Um, it's it's it, there's there's some hope in there. There's definitely some joy. <laughs> it's not just a downer. Yeah. No, it's not just a downer. I get messages on Instagram all the time that are like, "Are you just a sad person?" I'm like, "No, I'm actually very happy." Most, yeah, I'm a very joyful yeah. person. Um, yeah, yeah. And I think, and it's because um, the the book is about grief and the idea that the grief we have is not something we've ever asked for to the point where hmm. a lot of grief exists. And we're given that grief the second we enter this world. Um, mm-hmm. and we think about like parental abuse or, you know, growing up without a parent or sexual abuse, like these things that exist before we even have memory of them. Yeah. Or even having an abusive father and he was abusive because his father was abusive. So this like idea that grief has this lineage mm-hmm. and we're just in that row Mm. and um sort of the challenge that this grief we're given the challenge is to shape it into something yeah you pass it on to people you love inevitably you know wife husband your kids your coworkers. that it has been shaped into something that will produce a different product will produce Mm. laughter will produce joy will produce appreciation. So um, just the thought that, you know, the, the everyone has grief. We all have these, this grief we carry. And I think our, our responsibility and our challenge is to whittle it down again into something we could carry and 
learn from and teach from and love from. And I think in that there's a lot of hope. I mean, I'm not saying, you know, my circumstance is very different from someone else's circumstance. It's not, you know, as not that mine was simple, but it's not that simple for everyone. Yeah. Talking earlier, there's a lot of complexities, but just the fact that I, I think we, the, 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 the freedom to be able to walk just through your mind mm. and not be scared of what's in there, of what you find and having a place to share that with someone and that also being a safe place um, is life-changing. Mm. And that, that was the whole idea of the book for me. Um, again, yeah. growing up in foster care, um, dealing with mental illness, all these things and realizing that my responsibility having a wife, having friends, having a job is to my personal responsibility again, not everyone, but my personal responsibility was mm-hmm. to learn how to pass that on as something again, that produces joy and appreciation. So that's the, that's kind of the synopsis. Of the I book. love it. That's such a good that synopsis. Long. I, and I gathered that in reading it. Um, oh, good. <laughs> yeah. yeah which I, is cool. Like that, that, that spirit really did carry through in the poems. Um, yeah, I recommend everyone listening to go grab it. Cause it was just, it was something, especially for several months there. I, I was, it was part of almost like my morning devotional was, <laughs> was I do a little bit of Bible reading. I do, um, a little bit of William Bortz and, and then start my day. Cause it was just, yeah, really impactful. It got me in touch with, I guess, the meaningful parts of life. And like you said, you said this earlier, like grief is so so attached, not just to the loss of a loved one, but even just to minor, whenever our expectations are thwarted <laughs> in big ways or small, mm-hmm. there's something in what you made that touches on it. And mm-hmm. so it was grounding. It was like healthy. It felt healthy to, to absorb that on the daily. So I am glad hearing that coming from you, <laughs> a profession yeah. in the field of, of healthy. Um, <laughs> just great. Yeah, I'm grateful it resonated with you in some way yeah yeah well everyone go grab it on amazon get it and get it in print too it's just so it's so good i don't know if you don't have it in print i just see the tactile like why is the book is beautiful it feels good in your hand make sure to grab it read it on the daily it's a good one Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. thanks william thanks for coming on we'll talk again soon i'm sure thank you matthias